Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to the podcast. This is Kristen. And this is Molly. So Molly, today we're talking about women's magazines. Ooh, a guilty pleasure. Guilty pleasures. And recently the magazine Glamour mm-hmm. received a ton of reader mail mm-hmm. and national spotlight for this photo of a model, plus-size model, named Lizzie Miller. She's size 12, and it was kind of a side shot of her. She was sitting down. She was naked in the nude, in the buff. And it showed something that they're now referring to as her belly flap. Her belly flap. Now, first of all, can I just say... A size 12 model does not sound like a plus size model. doesn't sound plus size, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that later on okay. in the episode. But yeah, there was this huge, you know, outpouring of praise for Glamour for showing a real, real woman's body with actual not, they didn't Photoshop out her belly flap. She actually had a little, little thigh, thigh fat. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it just, it reflected more of a normal woman's body than say, you know, Kate Moss. Yeah. So. Now, was the outpouring positive? Oh, yeah, it was very positive. They were saying, oh, thank you so much, Glamour, for actually, you know, showing a real woman's body. We can actually relate to this. And Lizzie Miller got all this wonderful attention. And Vogue has also promised to, like, start showing more, quote unquote, plus size models in their, um, in their magazines as well. But then, I mean, there's this whole question, though. I mean, if there was such a huge, outpouring of love for a single photo, Molly, mm-hmm. in Glamour. What does that say about women's magazines and where we are today? I mean, if it was such a breath of fresh air to actually see some semblance of a real woman's body, what kind of messages are we getting from these magazines? Exactly. And the reason I asked you what the outpouring was like is I remember, um, you know, that my Bible growing up was 17 magazine. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't my real Bible. I don't want to offend religious people. But as a young girl trying to make my way in the world... I read Seventeen magazine. Yes, and I remember one time they put in kind of this chubby model. Not, I mean, she wasn't chubby; she looked real. But they got just as many letters. They said from people who didn't like seeing someone like that in a magazine as they did from people who were like, "Yes, thank you, someone who looks like me." So it's almost like we want these standards of perfection in the magazines. But then as soon as you know something deviates from the norm of the magazine, we're either so relieved or so kind of almost put off by it. And Molly, I would agree that it seems like. A lot of women's magazines do portray this unattainable ideal of women's beauty, mm-hmm. you know, that's going to keep us buying all of those products that their advertisers are hawking. And in general, you can you can break down most women's magazines into these main categories. You've got sex, relationships, fashion, beauty, food and health. And mm-hmm. a lot of times food and health kind of go together, as we'll talk about later on. But how how are all of these topics really shaping um our ideas about ourselves as women. Because if we go back to the olden days of women's magazines, they were a far sight different than the ones that we have today, right? Right. I mean, they were still driven by women's ability to buy things. I mean, instead of advertising the latest lipstick, you might get the latest cool lace pattern from the lace taste makers. Yes. You still might see the uh, most fashionable hairstyles of the day. But they're probably trying to sell you something you could use, you know, around the house or on the farm than on your face. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, what I also liked is that back in the day, we're talking like late 1800s, early 1900s, women's magazines had a ton of fiction and plays in them because they were like this main source of entertainment for women. So you would get your um, lady mag and you would open it up and you would read it to your entire family and that would be your entertainment for the month. Well, do you want to hear some titles of these old school magazines? I do. I think everyone will appreciate these. I pulled out some of my favorites. Polite Companion for the Fair Sex. Toilet, a weekly collection of literary pieces principally designed for the amusement of ladies. This one I found the creepiest. Ladies' Afternoon Visitor. (laughs) And then The Mother's Magazine, which there's still a Mother's Magazine. But one thing that was interesting about these older magazines were that um, pro-suffrage women ended up using and starting their own magazines to push for these earliest uh, kind of feminist ideas, too. Yeah. Um, the journal started by Lucy Stone, who you may remember from our Maiden Name podcast, um, was sort of the one of the big pushers of making the suffragette movement mainstream, making it acceptable to talk about. And these women were writing the magazines themselves for other women. And so they took this really um, political bent sometimes. Mm-hmm. And then um, going back to this uh, idea of magazines kind of hawking this American consumerism, in the 1930s, you have the arrival of store-distributed magazines, like the ones, the racks that we see in the grocery stores today. And that kind of hearkened the more of the arrival of uh, the relationship between the advertiser and the magazines. And I remember when I was reading The Feminine Mystique, um, Betty Friedan often references women's magazines and the advertisements in them, uh, portraying you know, the ideal woman as having all of the newest household items and gadgets to make her her life at home perfect and how she can become you know, this domestic goddess. I mean, we all want to live our best life possible. So I think that the women's magazine kind of sprung up as this way to do so. And the year before the Feminine Mystique came out, we have a very important uh, development in women's magazines, right? That was the year before that? Yes, that was the year before that. We have Helen Gurley Brown mm-hmm. take over as the editor of Cosmopolitan Magazine. Probably the most, I think, stereotypical women's magazine. Like when we're talking about women's magazines today, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about sort of the fringe publications. Oh, yeah. I would say that... Uh, Cosmo was my version of Playboy because they were hidden under my bed. Sorry, mom. (laughs) And, you know, I I didn't read them when I was, you know, in college. I was reading them when I was, you know, in late middle school and Mm -hmm. early high school. And that was my first glimpse into what ladies did in the bedroom. I know. I know. It was it seemed very uh, forbidden, like it had all the secrets of being a an adult woman out on her own. Yeah, I would offer you 150 tips on how to turn on his moan zone <laughs> or whatever. And, that, you know, it was something, we weren't having conversations about that. I mean, I would never go to my mom and say, Mom, 150 ways for the moan zone, go. Yeah, but uh, but Helen Gurley Brown was this kind of revolutionary figure in the early 60s because she wrote this book called Sex and the Single Girl. Mm-hmm which was this manifesto, if you will, of the new working girl. We've got the, it's coinciding with the rise of second wave feminism. And Gurley was saying that, you know, women can have it all. We can have sex, we can have men, and we can also go for the job of our dreams all at the same time. Which sounds pretty, um, you know, standard for women who grew up, I think, in our age, Kristen, people who are about our age. But at that time, that was pretty revolutionary. Yeah, and, and she took 
Cosmopolitan from being more of the Saturday Evening Post literary magazine and turned it into the Younger Working Girls Guide to Life. Mm -hmm. So I think the problem that people have with Cosmo is that it hasn't changed since that maybe first inception. Like, yes, there are still single women who are trying to have it all, but it just focuses on the things that she still deems necessary to have it all, which is primarily a man and amazing sex. Yeah. And Girlie Brown has been a very controversial figure when it comes to uh, feminism, because on the one hand, yeah, she did open up this kind of new conversation for the mainstream woman about sexuality. But she's also been criticized by a lot of feminists because she constantly attaches a woman's happiness and worth with whether or not she has a man and is promoting these heteronormative ideas of what it means to be a woman mm-hmm. in America and what it means to really have it all. Yeah. So we're reading a New York Times article that traced the evolution of these magazines and they did start out very much like, yeah, you go out there and you date a man if you need to. And then, you know, you don't have to marry him, blah, blah, blah. But now these magazines sort of have shifted. And instead of learning about how to please yourself within these relationships, it's more about how to please the guy. Yeah. Um, and more about how to snag the guy to understand what he's thinking. And these tips sounded very um, awesome to me when I was in middle school and high school and didn't know any better. But now you read some of them and I'm just like, ooh. Well, I can, uh, as an example, can I throw out our favorite tip from this month's Cosmopolitan magazine? Yeah. Uh, Cosmo suggested, for instance, one way to turn a guy on is to, if you, if you don't have a hair tie or a scrunchie around, and you probably shouldn't have a scrunchie around anyway, uh, use a thong. Yeah. Take a thong and tie your ponytail with that. Which, yeah. maybe I don't understand thongs, but I still don't understand quite how that works. Seems like you just have a lot of fabric back there. Yeah. It, it wouldn't be very good ha- hair tie, but it might, might help you turn on his moan zone. <laughs> And that's the thing is that um, instead of being sort of a very smart woman's guide to sexuality in this crazy world of ours, it's it's very much about the man's moan zones and tying thongs in your hair. And I mean, now you can look at them and they're kind of silly, but there are people who buy into that. Is that healthy? I don't know. Well, Molly, if we're asking the question of whether or not um, it's healthy, I think that especially from an adolescent's perspective, it might not be that healthy because I think a lot of younger girls do buy into these media ideals of what it means to be a woman and what it means to be beautiful. For instance, um, you found an, a study by Jean Chow called Adolescence Perception on Popular Teen Magazines. And she points out a study among 268 girls as young as nine who all evaluated their own physical attractiveness against models in advertisements. And overall, she concluded that um, adolescent women are led to believe that catching a man, losing weight, and looking attractive are primary goals in their life. Because if you take a close look at the language that's being used in a lot of these teen magazines and then translating upward to women's magazines. There's this focus on, you know, making yourself hot and sexy as the point of everything. You know, Mm -hmm. you want to do good in school so that you can be confident so that you can confidently approach that guy Mm -hmm. in the hallway and get him to ask you on a date. It all seems to end in whether or not you are attached to, you know, attached in a heterosexual relationship. Mm -hmm. And I do remember, like you said, like looking at, models in those magazines when I was younger and thinking about like, well, 
those girls' thighs don't touch. My thighs touch. You know, there's, there has to be something wrong with my thighs. I'm going to start doing some thigh exercises. Mm-hmm. And I just think that, uh, I think that those kind of issues are something that we should be cognizant of as women. Right. We were reading an editorial by Betsy Carter, who said that women's magazines are like a bad boyfriend. They spend all this time showing you everything you're not. You know, you don't have the guy you... Your thighs touch. You don't have these cool fashions. And they purport to show you the way to get there. Mm-hmm. You know, they give you the diet plan. They give you some thigh exercises. They give you 10 tips on meeting guys. Um, they give you the latest fashion. So it's almost like you have the roadmap. But it's all going to start over again next month when... None of those things really worked, and they'll give you the exact same tips again. Right, Molly. And for instance, just for fun, uh, I took a Cosmo Girl quiz entitled, Why Don't I Have a Boyfriend? <laughs> and it turns out that I'm just bashful. You're bashful. I'm too bashful. And, I, you know, if I see a cute guy at his locker, I really need to buck up and start talking to him more. And, you know, it won't be creepy at all to approach a cute stranger. You know what's odd is it has stuff works who really do have lockers, so... Yeah, I'm going to watch out for Kristen lurking this there. This could happen. But on the flip side, if you look at um, men's magazines, it's a lot more like pump up like, hey, dude, you're fine the way you are. Here's some pictures of some hot chicks. Have some awesome cocktails at your next party before you get in your really cool car. Yeah. And drive to the sporting <laughs> event. Right after I looked at the Cosmo Girl website that was all about, you know, Things that you don't have, whether it be relationships or clothes or whatever. Um, and so, and then I went over to Maxim's website and the section on women and girls had nothing at all to do re- with relationships. It was just different categories of women for them to look at. Well, I think the thing that, that still appeals about women's magazines is we all have some sort of area we want to improve on. I mean, we really are looking for sort of a way to improve our lives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I bet there's sort of enough of a touch of a truth in that bashful thing that it hit home enough for you to be like, gosh, how can I be less bashful? Yes. And I bet there is enough of the truth in that bashful thing that you were intrigued by the suggestions for how to be less bashful. So the thing is, there there's enough of of substance in the magazines that we're kind of willing to give them ago, maybe when we're at the airport looking for something. And I don't want to just say that um, magazines totally bash us every month. I think that women's magazines have done a tremendous amount in terms of educating women about health issues. Like, yes, every single magazine is going to hammer home breast cancer and breast um, breast health in October. But I mean, there are women out there who need to have that message kind of hammered home over and over again. And Molly, that point about uh, women's health that you brought up it is one area that um, second wave feminists were praising women's magazines because they were really some of the first spaces to talk about health specifically for women, even back as far as in the early 20th century when they did scandalous things for the time and talk about venereal disease mm-hmm. and uh, challenging the myths behind kind of quack medications and really empowered women to learn more about their bodies, especially birth control. Yeah. I feel like every magazine takes a very pro birth control stance. Uh, the first time I saw all the options that were available to me was in 17 magazine. Mm-hmm. And I remember in, I think it was also 17 magazine reading, um, uh, what to expect on your first trip to the gynecologist. Was it terrifying? <laughs> yes. But it gave me some, some info on what to expect. 
So they can be helpful in some ways, but I do, there is also the fear that all of these articles, especially around health, are couched in this alarmist language that they install fear into women before they reassure them about it. The same way that you have the fear installed in you about not having a boyfriend, not having the perfect sweater. And then the magazine and its advertisers, especially saying, Hey, we have the solution and it involves buying things, not eating as much as you used to and exercising a whole lot more. Right. And all of it is, um, portrayed from first person perspectives, especially a lot of these feature stories that they do. And a lot of the health articles are about, you know, a specific woman who had something really terrible happen to her. And yes, it'll trace like her triumphant rise back to, you know, normal daily life. But uh, it does seem kind of terrifying um, to read some of these stories. And then when we're talking about the idea of how women's magazines portray what it means to be female. I think that one big thing that we cannot get away from is the lack of racial diversity. Yeah. You found a really interesting post. Um, was it on Racialicious? Yes. It's a blog called Racialicious. And it um, broke down all the different stereotypes that these mainstream magazines put different cultures in. Basically, there's the Latina voluptuous stereotype, um, a very perfectly shaped butt. I almost said a different word. Um, and then in terms of black women, they're very whitewashed women. Yeah, they don't have, they have more white, if you will, features. And then as far as Asian women go, Asian, uh, they portray them as more doll-like and ethereal and not really, you know, quote unquote, normal women at all. It's sort of an ideal standard. And then the gold standard for white beauty is, um, not being ethnic and being fair skinned, fair haired and thin and especially not these days, not curvaceous at all. Right. They're holding up Gwyneth Paltrow as sort of this uh, typical female white model you would see in women's magazines. Yeah. And there has been a trend um, in Vogue and on you know fashion runways to include more diversity. But by and large, if you walk down the magazine aisle in a grocery store, it's nothing but white faces staring mm-hmm. back at you. And I think that, you know, there's a danger of being too critical on these because if I want a guilty pleasure, I don't, I don't want to read Ms. Magazine as good as it is for me. And as much as it does talk about issues that relate to me, I mean, at some point, I just want to look at sweaters, mm-hmm. the new, newest sweaters for fall. So I guess I hope this conversation is leaving people with the sense that there's some good in it, but don't let it be your abusive boyfriend that you keep coming back to because you feel bad about yourself. Yeah, I think that maybe um, Cosmo, we should say, does not need to be anyone's Bible and take those thongs out of your hair right now, women, <laughs> please. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it is important to support women's media because I think we do need to have a space to talk about the issues that um, pertains just to us and mm-hmm. be able to have open conversations about things like embarrassing period stories and dating gone wrong. And yes, how to find that perfect fall sweater, Molly, because, you know, I would like a new fall sweater <laughs> too. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I think that you have to take, especially mainstream women's media with a grain of salt and, um, also, maybe look for alternatives. You might not always want to read Ms. Magazine, but Bust is a little uh, poppier and yeah. a little a little cutesier and plus no dis smarter. no dis to Miss. Oh yeah, no dis to Miss at all. But I understand what you mean. There is a reason why 
I usually pick up like a Cosmo or a Glamour before a long trip because it passes the time because it's a lot of pretty glossy pictures and you get really hilarious sex tips Yeah, about thongs in your hair or or donuts. Although maybe there might be a gem, a gem every now and then within all the silly ones. Sure. I mean, there's an audience for everything. Just be aware of what you're you're the audience of, I think, is the point of this podcast. To find something that speaks to you and doesn't make you feel bad about yourself. Yeah, and also, um, what do you guys read? What do you guys think about women's magazines? Guys out there, I want to know your opinion on that, too, because I know if, like most guys I've been with who have flipped through a Cosmo think it's the most ridiculous thing in the world. And so, I don't know. Do you think that it's healthy? Do you consume women's media at all? Do you really want to see thongs in people's hairs? Yes. Because maybe we have the wrong approach. Maybe we do have the wrong approach. So we want to hear from you guys what you have to think about this as well. Okay. So speaking of what our listeners have to say, want to do some listener mail? Sure. It's about menstruation. Ooh. This is from Kendra, who writes, In my family, periods have never been a taboo topic. My mom told both my brother and I about periods when we were little kids and asked why she wore grown-up diapers. All the female members of my extended family have been equally open about it. We never called it anything other than a period, and no man walking in on the conversation would stop it. When I was 11, I started my period, and I knew exactly what was happening. My mom actually took me out to lunch with my female family members to celebrate the occasion. The only school problem I had was that there were no trash cans in the girls' bathrooms at school, so my mom complained, and they started putting them in the restroom. I was always really open about it. Girls would ask what it was like, and I would tell them. I didn't even care if boys found out. My biggest problem with menstruation is I have endometriosis. It means that my uterine lining is also outside of my uterus, and as a result, I have extreme pain during my periods. I was actually lying in bed because of this when I was listening to this podcast. To help, I take birth control pills that make it so I only have four periods a year. I really like them because they prevent the lining from building up at all, so even when I have a period, it's only slightly uncomfortable. You also mentioned the podcast that you like to hear the opinions of women who don't want to have children. Well, I fall in that category, and I have to say I don't feel like my period oppresses me even with the condition, and I just feel like it is a natural part of being a woman, and a mammal for that matter. If I could turn off my reproductive system, that would be great, but as it is, I don't resent it or anything. Alright, um, and I've got a letter here from Angie. She says, my primary reason for writing you is to address the question you pose about the relationship that women who don't want children have with their periods. I'm one of those women who does not want children. I see my period as the lesser of two evils, though. For me, having a period is better than the alternative of not having one, i.e. being pregnant. I think that all women accept that your period is part of your life, so you just roll with the punches, so to speak. And for the record, I do believe that our society glorifies children and expects everyone to want to have them. That's just not the case. My husband and I made a conscious decision to not have children, and we were happy with that choice. I'm so tired of people constantly asking when we're going to have a baby and then looking at me in disgust when I tell them we are choosing not to do so. Enough on that soapbox. Okay, the next one is from Jennifer, who has, I think, a humorous anecdote to share. Um, she writes, My mother and aunts have a particular superstition that goes along with the evil menstruation idea, which is that they believe that a menstruating woman is toxic to plants. I like to think that they are educated and modern enough to question this idea, but to this day, my aunts will refuse to touch household plants during that time for fear of killing them. I'm not sure how strong this belief is in my mom, but I can say that since reaching menopause, the size of her garden has increased quite a bit. Nice. Uh, And Molly, we're going to close it out with an email from John. John says, 
I think that the reason menstruation is still a big deal is because it contradicts fantasies of women as beautiful things. The, the view of women as, as beautiful is tied to us so tightly, and it's hard to think of something gross that women go through that may challenge that fantasy. Men usually don't like to break that fantasy, and women prefer to be thought of as beautiful. My girlfriend just walked in, and she's making fun of me. One last thing. Are the eggs we eat chicken periods? A thought to haunt your dreams tonight. Food for thought. No pun, guys. Well, yes, it is a pun. Um, and if you want more puns, maybe there are some embedded in our blogs <laughs> that we write. We try and do one pun a, a post. Pun a post. Uh, head over to our blog. It's called How To Stuff. And as always, if you want to read more articles that Molly and I and our esteemed colleagues have written, you should get on the interweb and type in HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?